0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon and today we have a reoccurring guest back on. J.M. Berger is here to talk about his recent paper on extremist construction of identity. It's a great piece. We will post a link to the actual full-length paper with this talk but first of all welcome
1: back J.M. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to be here.
0: Yes, and I'm actually glad to be here, too. I had to take a little break from the Loopcast due to other commitments, but I'm back, so I'm excited to be doing the first show back with you. Cool. For our listeners who might not know of JM, and I would be surprised if you don't because he's had a lot going on in the last couple years, JM is an associate fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism, and he's also a researcher and analyst and a consultant And his special focus is on extremist activities in the U.S. and groups' use of social media. He has also co-authored a critically acclaimed book called ISIS, the State of Terror, with his co-author Jessica Stern. And he's also the author of Jihad Joe, Americans Who Go to War in the Name of Islam. He's published a lot of other amazing and great reports. So we're just so happy to have you back on the show, JM.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here.
0: So why don't we open up this talk with you telling us a bit about the inspiration for this paper and the background, because it's a really interesting topic. And when I first read it, I got very excited because this is a completely different way of looking at and tackling the idea of legitimacy and identity with extremist groups.
1: Oh, that's what I like to hear. Uh, So I really, uh, was thinking about a lot I've been thinking about for many years now uh what is extremism and how can we look at and study extremism without getting caught up in the in any particular kind of ideology so you know for for many years now since 9-11 you know most of the talk that we have about extremism has been focused on jihadi stuff and there are people who work on white nationalism and work on you know other forms of extremism but they're, they're sort of separate, you know, uh, factionalized uh, areas and, and people don't tend to cross over that much. So I really wanted to start thinking about this problem in a way that was more universal because I feel like extremism is a field of study in its own. Uh, you know, and, and we've been approaching it as being kind of derivative of other fields. It's politics, it's religion, it's psychology, and and you know, I, I over the course of a lot of years, and having worked on not just on jihadi stuff, but also on sort of domestic right wing extremism, I just really I felt like that there was some value in trying to approach this from the perspective of asking what you know what qualities are sort of universal to extremist groups. And, and what structures and, and how can we start thinking about them in a way that helps us understand each individual separate piece. So going deeper
0: within this paper, what was your methodology for this great piece?
1: Well, I wanted to approach this uh, looking at texts so I've been working a lot with the, as you've mentioned, the International Center for Counterterrorism in The Hague. And they've been uh, standing up a project called the Strategic uh, Counterterrorism Communications Project. And so we've been doing a lot of work on propaganda and, and messaging. And how do you how do you do strategic messaging that, that counters terrorist uh, narratives and in the, so in the course of that, you know, that's really kind of taken off, and I've been very fortunate to work with a great team there. And in particular, I, I've been really following closely the work of Dr. Hororo Ingram, who's another another fellow with ICCT. And he has he and I have been sort of writing papers that, that, you know, you can sort of see one of us takes a piece of the other ones and then takes it off in an unexpected direction. And so his most recent piece had been uh, – discussing a, a way to approach uh, counter-messaging and propaganda, understanding propaganda through linkages. So his, his premise is that concepts can be linked. And so he did this in a very high level way. So, you know, the high level sort of proposition he put forward is that extremists link an out group to a crisis, and then they link an in group to the solution. So, the, the crisis, you know, is linked to the in-group, it afflicts the in-group, and then the in-group provides the solution, and the solution affects the out-group. And so what he is proposing is that we, you know, think about when we're doing messaging to counterterrorism, that we do it, you know, we try and attack those linkages. We try and dissolve those linkages and build new ones. So what I did is, is sort of take that idea and make it much more granular. Um, and so I, I approached a large body of extremist texts. And I decided to use uh, Christian identity, the, the source material behind the white nationalist group. Christian identity is the basis for this because there's a, a tremendous number of texts to work with over the course of a long period of time. And I, you know, so I, I what I wanted to do was kind of twofold. I wanted to map linkages of concepts. So go beyond just like crisis and in group, but really like map very specific kinds of linkages inside Inside those categories um, was the first thing. And then the second thing uh, is that I wanted to do something that sort of dealt with the problem of identity and extremism, uh, because and that that really was inspired by watching the 2016 election and looking at uh, a lot of the. Definitions and, and concepts and, and political rhetoric around the identity in the United States that I, I was concerned about when I watched it, and I wanted to do something that would be relevant to that.
0: So why don't you tell us and our listeners a little bit about in-groups and out-groups, just in case someone's coming from a completely different background or field and they might not know exactly in the context what this means.
1: Sure. The terminology comes from something called social identity theory, which is a way of looking at how groups interact. And so you have, uh, you know, when you you look at how people sort of define their own identity and then define the identities of others, what you see is that you you will have an in-group, which is the group that you belong to. So I'm an American, so other Americans are in my in-group. Uh, and you know you then you have an out group and that out group might be, we'll say, you can take it in a lot of different forms, let's just say Russians since that's very hot right now uh, so Russians are the out group and there's a, a body of, of work that really is designed to sort of exploring how in groups and out groups interact and uh, people who know my work will know that I, I'm often uh, I'm, I'm very keen on reinventing the wheel <laughs> I, I sometimes don't don't sit down and exhaustively review all the literature. I just kind of plunge in and try and do something, and uh, the, so that's what I kind of took this framework and approached the subject. You know, trying to do it in, in kind of a really with fresh eyes.
0: So continuing on the in-group and out-group um, concept, in your opinion, how do movements become more extreme in conjunction with? in groups and the need for the legi- legitimacy excuse me
1: so there's a it's a surprisingly long process you know what i i found i, I suppose this is probably a good time to sort of talk about the the big case study in the paper which is uh the development of of christian identity um christian identity is a, a virulent violent white nationalist movement but it emerged from a, a movement called british israelism and British Israelism started in the late 1800s, and it was really, in many ways, seemed like a kind of harmless thing. It was a historical conspiracy theory that said that British people were the descendants of the Lost Tribes of Israel. So it was a way to sort of elevate, you know, put some some status, some, some prestige on, on British people in a religious kind of context, but it, it wasn't, that was all it did at the beginning. And so what we found, what I found over the course of looking at this, um, was really kind of this journey of what happens when you define an identity, define an in-group as an identity. And you start, when you start identifying yourself as part of an identity collective, that's usually something that's kind of innocuous in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we say I live in, I live in Boston, so, you know, I'm, I'm a Bostoner. or I live in America. I'm an American or, you know, uh, often it's geographical. Often it's kind of a, uh, has to do with pragmatic kind of external realities that cause you to, to group with other people in a, in an identity. And we say we're Christians or we're Muslims. and, And that's, that's the in group. That's an in group that you're creating. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that in groups. And, and these, process of of asserting an identity are really, uh, as I argue in the paper, it's about legitimacy. And and when I say legitimacy, what I mean is it's about the right to exist as an identity collective. So you're saying, well, you know, we're from Boston and being a Boston person is, is an identity we can assert. Or you say, you know, we're Irish or we're Italian or we're white or black. And once you assert that identity, you start looking for reasons to justify why it's okay for you to have that identity. So uh, what what we see happening over the course of time uh, with British Israelism is that sometimes when you have that initial identity, you can get into a cycle of escalation where you start developing elaborate justifications for why you have that identity, and then those justifications... Formed the basis for a demand for more legitimacy so with the british israelists you know at first they're saying okay we're just the lost tribes of israel that has kind of implications for people who are jewish and at first uh the british israelists were were very friendly to to jews they were just like well we're cousins we're you know we're friend- We're we're going to be reunited someday later on in history and we all come from the same place and you know it's all good and over the course of a hundred years what happened was is that Jewish identity became a threat to British Israelist identity. So it was first it's like not only are the British Israelists are the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel, but we've inherited the covenants that God promised to Israel. And then there started to become a strain of thought that said, Well, we are your, we have inherited those covenants and jewish people have not they because of their you know actions that are described in the bible or or because of conspiracy theories that we believe we believe that jewish people have disqualified themselves from from being the chosen people of god and receiving the benefits of these covenants and that slowly escalated and and became more and more virulent until uh finally the whole movement would still exist today but it, it it birthed a, a major splinter group that was called Christian identity and that was virulently anti Semitic. Um and it also expanded its uh its outgroups. So it wasn't you know, it started off being anti Semitic and then they it created a bigger and bigger racial theory that eventually started to encompass all other all non white people. So, you know, it started off as being sort of British, Anglo Saxon Israel and then it became Anglo-Saxon and American, and then it became white people in a very broad way. And the outgroup also changed, and it, it expanded. So the outgroup was initially Jewish, and then it was black, and then it was all, all non-white people.
0: And looking at this way of dele- delegitimizing or demonizing the other on the part of... Let's move on to Christian identity since you've tracked it towards that movement. What are some of the methods that they used to do this to those they considered part of their outgroup?
1: Basically, uh, you know, I, I traced, in tracing this proce- process, I really came up with something that I, I call the ladder of identity construction. And the concept behind this is that there's a template for defining an identity group. And as an identity group becomes more and more established, it fills in all the, all the blanks, right? So there's like a, a form and that form includes beliefs. Like what does our group believe? It includes your behavior. How do we, what do we do? I, call, I usually refer to this as practices. Like what are our practices? How do we, you know, well, how do we do things in Boston? Uh, then it, it, as the identity becomes more established, these, these, uh, definitions expand into the past, so we start talking about well, what's our history? What did we do in the past? And then, what's our expectations about the future? What's our destiny? Is, are there prophecies? Or do we have a Do we have analysis? Do we have something that we're shooting for in the future? Um, and then finally, you know, it gets caught up in this kind of intrinsic. There becomes sort of this intrinsic idea of what does it mean to be. From Boston, what does it mean to be an anglo saxon if you're if you 're in this british israelist to Christian identity cycle and there 's also a, a parallel track for the outgroup, so the same categories apply to the out group uh, and when you 're building the in group identity, all of that is kind of it 's just about legitimizing your own identity when you start building the out group. What happens is, when you get caught in this cycle of escalation where you're demanding more and more legitimacy, you need more and more latitude to, to justify your existence, um, you get to a point where your your need for legitimacy has to be satisfied at the expense of the outgroup. And that's my definition of extremism that I, I put into this paper. Um, so in order to do that, you build an outgroup identity through these narratives, through these ideological texts, and it has all the same categories, beliefs, what do they believe? And and all of these categories are subject to error and distortion and manipulation, but the outgroup even more than the in-group, because often the in-group people won't have direct experience with the outgroup. So what do they believe? And then you you fill in the gaps, like this is what we think they believe, and it's kind of malevolent. And then what do they do? What's their current practices? What are their past practices? What do we expect their future practices to be? And that's where you start to get into really kind of dangerous territories, where you start talking about prophecies. You start talking about apocalyptic expectations. And uh, as you build out that outgroup identity, you start associating it with threats, so, you know, it's okay. Well, their behavior is, what do we think they do? We think they're involved. In the case of the British Israelists, they came to believe that Jewish people were involved in a conspiracy to take over the world that came from the, a very well-known conspiracy tract called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So when you start to fill in the outgroup categories, and you start to fill it in with these things that are very dangerous and threatening, then you start to associate the outgroup with a threat. And then that's where you're, you know, the final piece that sort of uh, marks the boundary between being extremist, meaning you have these views that are negative about the outgroup and being a violent extremist, because then you start thinking you have to do something about this threat, the threat you can't just coexist you can't ignore this threat because this threat is ever deeper and bigger and more cosmic. And so we have to take more and more extreme violent steps to to address the threat.
0: And in this study, you looked at specific texts to gain information on these shared beliefs, shared history, etc. And I was wondering if we could discuss those a bit, because they're very interesting and um, quite juicy for this topic that's the best way of describing
1: it yeah the the this whole you know this approach that i'm using in here this ladder of identity construction and definition of extremism and definition of radicalization that i put forward in here they're all derived from reading the texts so i didn't you know go out with kind of a preconceived notion of what this is what extremism is going to be and this is what radicalization is going to be and and you know, this is, I, I didn't have the ladder in my head at the beginning, uh, about halfway through, I started to get the idea of of what I wanted to do. So a lot of that is derived from reading the texts. And I picked, uh, a series of, of texts that marked moments of transition for the movement pretty much. So I started with, uh, one of the earliest, not, not the complete earliest, but one of the earliest, uh, explanations of of this British-Israelist concept, which was called Judah's Scepter and Joseph's Birthright. And that's a it's a really long kind of pseudo-historical uh, book that just sort of says, here's why Anglo-Saxons are actually the lost tribes of Israel. And then it, it does a lot of stuff that's derived from reading genealogies in the Bible. It starts off with scripture, and then it, it also incorporates some history, some real history, and then some... F- you know, fake history, folklore, basically legends and and folk tales, uh, to justify this this you know grand argument that Anglo Saxons are are the lost tribes of Israel. Um, then, you know, there there are so many of these texts. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of British Israelist books and pamphlets. It's unbelievable how much of it there is. Uh, so I, I I moved forward a bit and started looking at. Uh, really, in the 1920s, what we saw was, uh, you know, there was a rising strain of anti Semitism uh, in Europe and America uh, related to, but distinct from, you know, the sort of the currents that produced the Nazi Party. And, you know, behind this in a, in a big way were, was this conspiracy text I mentioned earlier, which is, I think, a lot of people probably have heard of. It's called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And it's a forgery that really uh, uh lays out a, a it's it's kind of a funny text. It's an it's a critique of modernity, which was actually plagiarized from an earlier earlier writer. So it kind of lists all the things that can go along with kind of a modern, open, representative society. And because, you know, the original writer who, who wrote the the text this was lifted from, uh was pretty astute <laughs> in diagnosing all the things that could go wrong in a, in a open society. And so protocols takes all that content and recasts it as these things are going wrong right now. And it's all because of this conspiracy that this Jewish conspiracy, uh, and it attributes it to very directly to that. And, and the protocols, uh, you know, really just became this terribly pernicious and widespread influence spreading antisemitism, semitism in the early 20th century, it was published in the United States in an English version in 1920. And, uh, one of the people who really absorbed its content and and worldview was a guy named William Cameron, who, who was a editor of the Dearborn independent, uh, which is a newspaper published by Henry Ford, who's a notorious anti-Semite. And it really, that publication really helped popularize the protocols, conspiracy theory in the United States. And Cameron was a British Israelist. So he, you know, his involvement with this helped spread that content into British Israelism. So the British Israelists started to go from, you know, just celebrating their their special Anglo-Saxon connection to the Lost Tribes and started saying, well, you know, we're the chosen people and the people who call themselves Jews aren't. And that anti-Semitic, Strain really started to pervade the movement over the course of time, uh, and so one of the the next big texts in there was a book called When, which is uh, long time listeners will know that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm very interested in just how dystopian fiction is used in in radical movements, and and When is a dystopian novel that is a, based on British Israelism, mashed together with the protocols of the Elders of Zion, and it describes this conspiracy that culminates in the apocalypse and uh, really first articulates an idea that distinguishes Christian identity from British Israelism. And that idea is that the Jews were descended from Satan, literally uh, that, that uh, Satan in the form of serpent sex with Eve in the garden of Eden and produced children who were satanic satanic hybrids of humans and 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 angels and that those people are the people we know today as jews and there's some some details i'm glossing over in here because we don't have six hours but uh that's the basic concept is is that uh you know that that not only is this jewish conspiracy trying to take over the world and it's aligned with the communists who were at the time the the big bad in in the global political stage. And oh by the way, they're also descended from Satan. Literally descended from Satan. And so that really sort of sprung us forward into, you know, what what we now know as Christian identity. And and that was picked up by people like a preacher named Wesley Swift, who was a very fiery radio preacher uh in the 50s and 60s. And uh they anti-government activist named William Gale, who would go on to create um, a group called Posse Comitatus, which uh, has really seeded a lot of other kinds of extremism. It was based in Christian identity, but it also added a lot of concepts that would later be picked up by sovereign citizens and by anti-government groups of of all stripes. And and so uh, ultimately Christian identity found its fullest expression in the Aryan nation's, which was, you know, it sort of reached its peak in the 1980s and 1990s.
0: I have two questions for you. So you've given us almost a historical background of these texts, and then the different ones that have come out originally, and then the ones that have preceded them. Are they still prevalently available, and do people attached with Christian identity or any of the more radical groups that view whether it's African-Americans or Jews as, as, you know, the other, very much of an out group, Then that's a nice way of putting it. Do they still use these texts?
1: Yes. Uh, so that's a great question. Uh, Christian identity uh, adherents are, are really very uh, enthusiastic archivists and as are British Israelists. There are still some British Israelists who didn't go in the direction of being full-on racist group. So uh, that that movement survives, and Christian identity survives in in a somewhat reduced form today from what it used to. And they're very, very enthusiastic archivists. So they have tremendous online repositories of this material, and and you know exactly how much that material bolsters them in in the present day is a little bit unclear but what we kind of saw in the development of this group is that after a while it became what these older texts said became less important than the fact that they existed so when you get to the point of wesley swift he would make references to the fact that these texts existed but he never really delved into them and he freely reinterpreted them but they they added to this to this ladder of identity construction because they were available and they were, you know, referenceable, citable. So, you know, when you, if, if you were challenged on something, you go back and say, well, look at what professor Rand did or professor Totten did, or, you know, this person and that person. And, uh, so, so this stuff really does continue to exist today. And it, it helps flesh out these, this ladder of identity. One quality of the, this sort of ladder of identity construction is that, you know it it becomes more and more robust over time and and there's a as it becomes more complex it it provides a more complete solution to the problems you perceive in the world and that'll, that'll be something I'll t- I'll be talking about in upcoming papers but uh you know that the more material you have to work with the more real the identity becomes
0: so with these texts then in the latter model fall under a shared history as a scripture creating the history that this group perceives?
1: the texts well the texts are are in a way they're a gateway to that history but they do actually that's a, a that's a really good point actually i kind of wish i had i had written it uh <laughs> there you go next page <laughs> yeah yeah and i'm gonna have to cite you uh yes, please,
0: that'll be great thank you <laughs>
1: no, So. The, the texts are sort of a gateway there, you know, it, the, the ladder of identity construction contains all these categories and then sort of down the middle of the, the chart that's in the paper are the sources. And so the sources start off, you know, starts off with fewer sources It start off with just sort of history. And then okay. the Bible, these guys understood the Bible as history. And then, uh, you know, they slowly, as the movement beliefs became more and more complicated and, and weird, they had to go further and further afield to find sources. So they would go out and find apocryphal books from the Bible, and then they would find weird medieval texts and stuff like that. But that's a, a really, a, that's a great point that the you just made there, is that, you know, these, these texts actually, you know, become sort of meta-history, I guess is what you would call them. That, you know, the actual history that they convey is, 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 the underpinnings of where the beliefs came from, but the history of the texts themselves are kind of a meta history that that supports the whole structure. I'm definitely citing you. <laughs> well thank
0: you. I'm glad, you know, this is this is part of the loopcast. We we bring ideas into fruition. <laughs> so in your study, what did you find as some of let's say the main main strong strong elements that created extremism within these texts and then how that reflects within the groups that read the texts and share this history
1: so i think based on the reading of this particular movement i should just preface this by saying that this paper is the first in kind of a series of explorations so one thing that i've done throughout my career for better or for worse is I do a lot of my thinking aloud in public. <laughs> so I sort of like work through problems by doing you know, when I'm tweeting them or, or posting about them when I haven't completely got to the end of the road. Uh, this is a slightly more structured version of that. So this is the first in a series of papers, uh, that are going to take this framework and look at a variety of different groups, um, and then test the conclusions and probably revise some of them. Uh, so right now, based on the case study that's in this paper as well as based on you know sort of my broader reading and experience in, in tracking extremist groups and, and their propaganda over the course of a lot of years, uh, it seems to me that there's one sort of key element in the escalation of the demand for legitimacy that we see pushing a group toward extremism it has to do with challenges and, and that really kind of reflects uh, in an interesting way on on what we've been doing under the the rubric of countering violent extremism over the last couple of years. When you challenge, the British Israelists uh, were constantly being challenged from the very beginning. They were were really, what they were proposing was really a divergence from Christian theology, which Christian theology at the time held that uh, the covenants that God made with Israel had been basically voided or replaced by Jesus in the new Testament. So it's called replacement theology. So the, all the covenants in the old Testament are no longer operative is what the majority of Christians believed at that time. And the British Israelists were arguing against replacement theology. They were saying, well, no, the covenants still exist. only they now they they're British. And (laughs) so, uh, naturally uh this this idea got a lot of pushback and what you can see in the text uh is that the pushback when they got pushback when they were criticized by mainstream scholars when they were criticized by by other people for their beliefs that prompted them to develop more justifications and this is in a way this is kind of an obvious thing except it's it, it, in a way it's not uh you know if if you say i believe in you know, Jesus, I'm a Christian. And I say, well, I think being a Christian is stupid. And then you're going to say, well, here's why being a Christian is good. And you're going to give kind of a, you know, a justification of why you believe what you believe. So if I say specifically that X Christian belief doesn't make any sense, then you might go and research that and come up with a more elaborate justification for why that belief is correct. And so what you can see in, in the history of these texts and the progression of these texts is that these guys would respond to those kinds of criticisms. So they would say, well, you know, this professor, this preacher said that this isn't legitimate because of this. And so here's a more detailed explanation of why our belief is correct. And with each sort of wave of challenges, the group became a bit more extreme because when you come up, you, you challenge X assumption. And then I come back and say, well, here's, X, Y, and Z justifications, then X, Y, and Z justifications can be used to develop new new ideas. So it's like, you know, when I, I've come up with this great explanation for why, you know, Anglo Saxons are the lost tribe, and that more detailed explanation opens the door to saying, Well, but, you know, people we we know today as being Jewish are not descendants, proper descendants of Israel, and they don't inherit the covenants uh and so when that gets challenged then you add another element in and you come up with a new justification and then the new justification gives you a new basis for demanding more legitimacy and so really i think one of to me one of the critical findings in this paper was that direct assaults on legitimacy uh run the risk of escalating the the extremist orientation of the movement so where that really becomes very relevant as opposed to being sort of this high-minded academic thought is when you look at what we've been doing in countering violent extremism since 9-11, uh, we've had a tremendous program of sort of direct assault on the legitimacy of, of terrorism. And when, you know, to some extent, uh, people have, for, for understandable reasons uh fixated a lot on how these movements relate to Islam more broadly. Uh you know, how is 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 ISIS, you know, the Graham Wood article is, you know, about how Islamic is ISIS. And then, you know, a lot of people who take a, a different approach from what Wood's saying and say, well, you know, this extremism is is normative Islam and and making that argument and then all this stuff uh all these back and forth about legitimacy, I think has helped escalate the extremism in some cases. So I think that you can argue to some extent that, that ISIS may be a a product of that. Um, When you, so there's, there's two elements to this. So one is uh, a lot of our rhetoric and our allies and, and some Muslim governments have attacked, attacked Al Qaeda on the basis that they're, they're, understanding of Islam was not legitimate. They're not legitimate Muslims. And that can trigger escalation. And then the other element is is that you have people on the on the anti Muslim fringe, uh, in this country in Europe, who say, Oh, this is absolutely you know, this is absolutely everything that Islam is about, is these guys are are exactly expressing Islam and that so that feeds their sense of legitimacy while on the other hand, we're challenging it and forcing them to come up with new justifications and I think that's a recipe for for escalation uh and and that's something that's very worrisome and then the flip side of that, of course, is that the people who are trying to you know say that al Qaeda's representative or al qaeda or isis are representative of of normative Islam or normative muslims uh are themselves creating an extremist identity uh they're they're outgr- making the out group ladder for Muslims and then developing their own extremist in-group. So I think, you know, I I think that a lot of the conclusion that I came to in reading this really as far as how we approach uh, counter-messaging and how we approach maybe de-radicalization efforts is that it's better to try and undermine the ideology rather than attack it head-on. Because that way, you know, what you end up doing, you, you have some – attacking a hit on will, will dissuade some people, uh, but it will cause others to, to go further down the road. And so I think that, you know, there there's maybe a better way than uh, the kind of ideological combat that, that, you know, one might fear happening under a Trump administration, and that certainly to some extent has happened in, in previous administrations.
0: And I'm gonna be the devil's advocate here because this is such a juicy topic with your research, and then, like you said, um, with other groups that we're dealing with presently. What might be other ways of countering this uh, this message, and and maybe not attacking the legitimacy, but somehow still making individuals realize. That they don't want to join that group. I mean, it's, it's such a difficult situation and topic that I always love to debate this because it's it's important. But there's like a fine line, as as you have mentioned, and as your paper has shown, of of the way you tackle it, where it almost, if you're not careful, careful, will do the opposite effect of what you actually are trying to do.
1: Yeah. So I have I will have two papers coming out probably in June that are the next papers in the series. And what they're going to do is look at some examples of ISIS propaganda, Islamic state propaganda. And, to say. Say, uh, you know how, so taking these pieces of propaganda, how do you program against this? How do you use this linkage concept to, to undermine things? And, you know, without giving away the entire spoilers, uh, you know, there's, I think that there are ways to undermine the message um that instead of going head on at the legitimacy, you you identify some ideas that are presented in this are, you know, when, when I I basically the papers will sort of take these Islamic State texts and and do them as a graph. So, you know, similar to how a social media graph looks except with concepts and these are the concepts that are linking. And in the case of the Islamic State propaganda, I sort of expanded this in-group, out-group piece a little bit. So Islamic State has two in-groups. One is the extremist in-group, which is you're a member of the Islamic State, and then the other is the eligible in-group, and that's Sunni Muslims that they're trying to recruit. So when you take the concepts in a, in a, a speech, and I, I've already done this for an Adnani speech, and that'll be probably the first paper that comes out, um, what you can see is that he describes each of these groups in ways that are compatible with this sort of ladder structure. Um, But then he, he links the concepts across groups. So some concepts are standalone concepts. So for instance, Adnani makes a point to say that the Islamic state is courageous. That's a standalone. That's a a pendant in a graph, right? You know, if you're drawing a graph, it's just like one, one quality that just hangs off of the, the extremist outgroup, group or extremist in-group, and, and it doesn't connect to anything else. But he also says that the extremist in-group, meaning the Islamic State, keeps its promises to the eligible in-group, meaning Sunni Muslims. So that connection, you know, when you, you draw that as a chart, that's, there's a bridge between the extremist in-group and the eligible in-group. And so you can attack... Those concepts. So instead of wasting a lot of time saying ISIS are cowards, which is a very popular thing to hurl at them, it's a useless piece of messaging because it doesn't connect to the other group, really. So if you but you can say that the Islamic State does not keep the promises it made to Sunni Muslims and you can back that up pretty, pretty well, actually, with a lot of factual information, uh, that's a piece of their messaging that this specifically part of their appeal that's how they're drawing a connection between themselves and the people they want to recruit and so you can attack those concepts dependence can come into play later so one thing that was kind of interesting is when they described the outgroup which from the speech that I was working with were Shia Muslims uh, you know they they put out a lot of you know they're hypocritical they're treacherous they're like snakes you know there's like a bunch of you know basic insults that are that are also pendants they're just <clears throat> excuse me uh just concepts that are just sort of hanging off of the extremist out group so what you can do is uh connect the extremist in group the islamic state and use the same things that they're using to attack the the out group so you know turn tur take the concepts that they're trying to connect to the to the out group meaning shia muslims in this case and then Pointed back at them and then you're that that helps undermine the the message that they're trying to put out so basically you know i think that there's the approach that i'm going to be outlining in 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 detail in these next two papers is really one of you know can you can we really be strategic about how we attack these linkages and, and concepts can we identify the concepts that are most important that have the most ability to bridge between the group and its recruits or the group and the people it's trying to intimidate and, and undermine those and not waste a lot of our time and energy on things that go nowhere.
0: Very interesting. Well, I look forward to reading those because it's very much in my sphere of interest and I'm sure our listeners, there'll be a lot of people that are excited about hearing these new papers coming out too. So to bring it back to the current paper, You're the author. You've done all this work. It's really a big piece of work. I'm sure you spent a ton of time on it, and it does show that you have because it's really, really interesting. So I highly recommend the listeners that are interested in this topic to read it further. Um, But as the author, what would you say are the main takeaways that you want your readers and our listeners to get from this piece of work?
1: uh i primarily i think you know this is in many ways an extended plea to start treating extremism as a discrete field of study and say we can study extremism in a way that transcends you know the jihadi box or the white nationalist box and talk about it in a way that is more robust so you know there's a new definition of extremism that's proposed in here that i i got some pushback on and uh You know, I find extremism as the belief that negative acts against an outgroup are inseparable from the health of the in-group. That you can't, the in-group can never be healthy without having these negative acts against an outgroup, and that radicalization then is understood as the adoption of increasingly negative views about the out-group and increasingly harsh actions that are justified to take against the out-group so it's a it's a spectrum and it's not uh you know a frozen moment in time where we say okay this is you're radicalized now uh and to me these definitions are important because they avoid some of the pitfalls of other definitions so a lot of other definitions are they're sometimes circular. It's like, well, extremism is the adoption of extreme ideas. That doesn't really help me understand what extremism is. Uh, if you look at the Prevent program in the UK, they defined extremism as being counter to mainstream British values. That's a moving target. You know what? What does that mean? Uh, And it it only means something in a particular moment in time. And, you know, what if British all became Nazis? Would that (laughs) mean that, you know, they're not extreme because that's mainstream British values? So these definitions that I'm putting forward are difficult uh They open up some doors to some kind of difficult conversations uh, and they especially at the low low levels in the early stages of a group becoming extremism there 's a lot of room for subjective kind of back and forth um, but I think they 're better than what we have, which is you know a lot of a lot of conflicting definitions, none of which really kind of get the job done so that that was a very important piece of of this for me um was really just start saying like we can talk about this in a way that is not bound to any one ideology and that there's a common framework that you know and and this will the subsequent papers are going to test this i'm not i'm not saying that this is conclusively proven at this point but i think that this framework can be taken to other kinds of identity extremism and maybe maybe even kinds of extremism that aren't immediately identifiable as being identity extremism um, and be useful and help us understand the progression of these groups and, and understand the, how their ideologies can be undermined and, and attacked. So.
0: Well, as you said, there's a lot of definitions on extremism and what is radicalization and violent radicalization and, I really enjoyed reading your take on it. And like you said, I'm sure there are people that maybe don't agree, but that is what this field's about. It's to bring ideas out and debate them and try to share and gain understanding on some of these topics that are really hard to get your head around.
1: Well, it's, it's you know, this is a really... Uh, I I love working on this. Uh, You know, I do it because I started doing it just because I was interested in it and not because I thought I was ever going to make a career out of it. And, uh, you know, I continue to be interested in it. But I also, you know, I'll I'll tell you, I started to get bored with kind of the current state of discussion on this. And so this is my effort to sort of really stir the the pot a bit and, and make it more you know, interesting and relevant and maybe try and get into some, some new spaces. And there's going to be quite a bit of work that is going to spin off of this paper. This is really a starting point for, for a lot of, a lot of additional work that I would like to do.
0: Well, that's fantastic news. I'm, I'm really excited to hear that. But thank you so much for coming on the show and discussing this new paper and discussing the up and coming research as well. It's, Left the door open. I hope we can have you back on the Loopcast when some of these other papers come out.
1: Absolutely. And who's going to interview you about your new CTC yes.
0: <laughs> We'll see. I know my co-producer has been been talking about that. It's going to be interesting to be on the other side of the <laughs> of you the should, microphone. So
1: absolutely, it was a it was a great piece. Uh, the whole team did a really good job, and you should definitely be be grilled by somebody for an hour on it.
0: Oh, well, I will let the team <laughs> know if they haven't if they don't listen to the show, I'll pass on the word to them cuz they're a great bunch. So, I'll uh, send a shout out to them, but thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast.
1: Always a good pleasure.